and welcome to What Is My Podcast About. This is a podcast where we get together fortnightly to discuss different topics to see if we can find out what our podcast is going to be about. My name is Keith Ramsey. As always, I am joined by Peter Akerley. Hello! And Matthew Grace. Hello. Uh, so as you can probably already hear, uh, some of us sound like shit and Matt sounds pretty good. Uh, that's because we're all recording from home over the computer instead of uh, with Matt's nice audio setup being our, I guess, audio engineer. Uh, that's a little bit of a stretch, but we'll go with it. Plus, we just sound less nice because Matt's not in our direct presence, and it's hard to put on our bravest voice when Matt's not around. Yeah, oh, my God. Why even bother? What's the point? Uh, so, uh, our last episode was a pre-recorded one, uh, so uh, that one was banked for a while, so that we decided we'd release that as our last good-sounding audio before we had to start recording in the now times as opposed to the before times. Because, yeah, you know, world order and such, lovely. Fantastic. Yeah, we're all kind of trapped in our homes right now, trying to make the best of it. Going stir-crazy. Still can't really do anything. Dedicated towards our goals of releasing podcasts fortnightly for you guys. Now, uh, it has been a bit long between uh, our last episode recorded live and released and this one. Have you guys been up to anything interesting in that time frame? Uh, a little bit. I have found a way to fill my time. Uh, that's with the new HD remake of Final Fantasy VII. That has been a, a solid chunk of my time. Uh, last I checked, I've now sunk 30 hours into that game, so a little bit, a little bit of time, given that it was released less than a week ago. I'm having fun. Solid. So is with what you've been playing so far, is it a direct uh, adaption, or are you finding that it's more of like they've added their new things in, or they just like elongated plot stuff? They mostly just kind of added a whole bunch of, like, side quest stuff to kind of elongate the plot. They've done a lot of things that, like, they probably couldn't have done super well in the uh, original one. Like, I don't remember it, but it's entirely possible I chose to blank out this memory. But there is a squatting minigame in uh, this new remake where you squat against professional bodybuilders to prove that you're the strongest as a soldier, uh, which was a weird time to say the least uh there's also they redid the whole um cloud uh cross-dressing to try and get into a mansion under the guise of a female uh which was also spectacular because now in order to uh unlock the cross-dress you have to compete in a rhythm-based dancing game where the <laughs> rhythm uh the camera constantly moves around and rather than just having like a bar on the bottom that scrolls saying what buttons to hit you have to be looking around the screen to try and figure out where the like next button prompt is going to pop up. At the same time, not being able to take your eyes away from the dancing happening in the middle of the screen. Oh my it's god. amazing. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much of the plot, but uh, I highly recommend it. I can 100% confirm that the squatting minigame was in the original as well. Okay. Oh my god. Well, I really need to get my hands on this now. Yeah, because how it's that scene worked so in the good. original game was... Uh, you essentially had a bunch of like little mini quests. They weren't even side quests that you had to do within that area in order to uh, be, be the most prettiest cloud uh, to uh, trick uh, the Dawn into picking you over the other two. And one of them was you had to go and do the squats, I believe, to get, I think it was like a wig or something. Uh, that's not what it's about this time around. Now you're just squatting to prove that you're the strongest, and it's completely separate from the cross-dressing quest, and you do not have to do it to unlock cross-dressing cloud. It's just a thing you do for fun now. You do unlock the champion belt, which boosts your strength and eight, uh, hit points, which is a reward, I guess. Always a good stat to have. And you haven't beat the game yet, you're just a decent uh, distance through it. Yeah, I have a feeling I'm near the end of this game, given that kind of the way they've presented it is they're essentially breaking it up into chapters and releasing them separately. I think I'm at the end, or I'm very close to the end of the game, but I don't think... What I've heard is that it gets longer as the game goes on each chapter, and I think there's 18 in total. Uh... Uh, yeah, if that's the case, I believe I'm on chapter, like... 15 or 16 so yeah not at the end yet but getting close okay also i have a question did you get a digital copy of the game i'm well i imagine you did because it's kind of I did not go out to brave fucking gamestop and their terrible 
business app. No, I bought a digital copy and downloaded okay. it. Okay, because I heard that despite being a PS4 game, the physical copy comes in two discs, which is insane. Yeah, I can't think of the last time I've seen that. I think the last time I ha saw that happen was the last generation of consoles with Final Fantasy XII. I think that was the last multi-disc game I saw. Sounds about right. Uh, yeah. Actually, thirteen was multiple discs on the Xbox. Yeah, Final Fantasy thirteen. I think on PlayStation it was three discs. No, I no, think on, uh, on PlayStation I remember it being one disc. It was the Xbox three hundred and sixty that needed the two. Okay, I'm thinking of thirteen, not twelve. Yeah, it was uh, three discs on the PlayStation for me as well. Okay, because uh, I remember the original Final Fantasy seven was in three discs. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I think that's a thing we got to get back into doing is having games so big they cannot be contained by a single disc. Rather I... than games so small, you require a multi-gigabyte download on day one. I mean, that's why Nintendo's ahead of the curve, going back to the cartridges. <laughs> I don't know if that's ahead of the curve or refuses to acknowledge the curve exists. It's ahead of the curve. All right. Uh, uh, have you guys been doing anything to fill your quarantine-based time? Uh, not really. Home renovations... Staying inside, pretty much that. You've been going around to people's homes and renovating them, Matt? That is pretty crazy. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's not really staying inside, either. I mean, inside house renovations. That's inside. <laughs> not he is inside. He just didn't specify what building he is inside of. <laughs> I'm inside all of them. <laughs> Someone else is home while they're asleep. Don't look in your They house. wake up and they have a new kitchen. Uh, one thing I've been doing is... Uh, of course, I've been playing Animal Crossing uh, like a madman, getting my island looking nice. Starting uh, your own cult, I've seen. Yeah, the Keezus cult, from what I understand. <laughs> it, wasn't, it, it wasn't intentional. Yeah, people are weird, and saw a picture of you looking like Jesus and decided to build a cult around it. I mean, what do you expect to happen, I suppose? I should have known better. Yeah, but uh, you can take comfort in this. If I ever get my hands on Animal Crossing, I too will spread the word. <laughs> now uh the thing i've actually been uh funny enough i got really nostalgic for was uh are you guys familiar with the uh, old tv show called scrubs yes Much so. Sense. so uh zach braff and Dolph Faison, the uh actors that played turk and jd uh they actually released a podcast uh about three four weeks ago as i'm recording this uh called fake doctors real friends and they're actually going through all of the old Scrubs episodes one by one and just talking about it. Huh. And That's delightful. My god, it is an amazing podcast, so I just started rewatching Scrubs again. I think I'm gonna have to do that and watch an episode of Scrubs and then listen to their podcast about that episode of Scrubs. That sounds like a delightful way to pass time. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. They want you to like uh listen watch the episode and listen to the podcast or vice versa as they go through it. They and they actually take like fan questions and stuff so they call you up uh if you uh are one of the recording and then start letting you ask questions and stuff that's so cool uh so just before we actually get into the uh plot of this episode as uh you're so uh excitedly waiting for finding out and you didn't read the topic uh, i just want to give a shout out for our last episode so our last episode was dungeons and dragons player edition uh we actually had one person correctly guess the episode uh, so that would be uh, Tachi underscore Camargo on Instagram. Uh, congrats for guessing the Dungeons and Dragons one correctly. Obviously, as a pre-recorded episode, we really couldn't give you a shout out in that one. Uh, so we're doing that now. And as always, uh, we did put the image up for uh, this uh, episode topic. So if anyone happens to guess it before we finish recording, we'll get the shout out at the end. Otherwise, you'll get the shout out at the next episode. As of right now, no one's correctly guessed it. I love our little headcanon that our fans don't look at the topic of the podcast until about the like 15 or 20 minute mark of the podcast when we announce it because we always make the joke of we'll tell you what the topic is soon and it never gets old for me. I just assume everyone's like me and can't read or write. If you're a fan of this podcast, continue not reading the topic of the podcast until we tell you what the topic of the podcast <laughs> is. Uh, so the topic we're actually doing today is going to be around Lovecraft and all of his great short stories and ideas. Yes, and this, uh, this topic was suggested to us, I do believe, by one friend named... Friend of the show. A friend of one of us named Will Leary. Thank you, Will. 
Now, if you know the canon of this podcast and its three hosts, you know which one of us has friends. That's right. None of us. True. Yes. So you, Will, random person, have been called out. <laughs> you have 24 hours to respond. We're not giving you a shout out. We're calling you out. So, H.P. Lovecraft, who is he? What's he do? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so, before we decided to do this topic off of the fan suggestion, did you guys know much about Lovecraft, or did you really kind of start looking into it because of us doing the episode? I mainly started looking into it because we were going to record about this. Up until now, I my only knowledge of Lovecraft was essentially Cthulhu. I didn't even really know much about that other than Hey, he's gonna come out of the sea somehow and take back the world for him and his followers or whatever. I knew a fair bit about the HP Lo- or Lovecraftian worlds, kind of from other things that have referenced it, and a few of his stories that I had read, but I wasn't super well versed in uh, his works. Yeah, it's like I knew enough to see something and go oh, that seems Lovecraftian, even if it's not necessarily Lovecraft-made. Of course, and that's the thing with Lovecraft. He's kind of this strange niche thing where he's not necessarily well-known specifically himself or even all the stories, but just certain things and aspects of what he created is so crucial to a lot of world-building and story-building within this type of mythos and type of story. Well, it's similar to what we said about uh, Tolkien in our fantasy versus sci-fi episode where he kind of generated an entire genre based on his own individual works and kind of defined a lot of what we talk about when we talk about stories today in the fact that we can see something that has no connection to him whatsoever and still refer to it as Lovecraftian. Which is kind of unfortunate in a way because if I'm correct on this, when he was alive and writing, he was never really famous. He was always in poverty and just wrote for some magazines. Well, that's the classic artist problem, is they're never famous while they're alive, and it's only through the retrospective of time that we begin to realize how genius their works were. Yeah. Which I'm assuming is what's going to happen with this podcast. (laughs) So you're saying we just have to die first. Yeah, uh, not even necessarily all of us. As long as one of us dies, uh, I'll take the bullet for the team. Uh, Presumably the podcast should become a lot more popular. Uh, except uh, if one of us were to disappear, I don't think I'd have the heart to continue. I mean, that, that has a much better idea of just one of us disappeared and not the uh, full extreme oh, we, we could do, like, the Coke method, where one of us disappears, uh, the other two create the new podcast without the first person, and when people hate it, the third person comes out of the woods, and now we have uh, what is my podcast about classic, <laughs> and it's immediately popular again <laughs> what is my podcast about turns into neo what is my podcast about and then we turn it into what is my podcast about classic what was my podcast about <laughs> yeah that's what the middle segment's called what was my podcast about and then what is our podcast about we actually change it from my to our for the third iteration and what is my podcast about sugar free with lime Hello, black cherry what is my podcast about I think that was my favorite flavor of Coke. No, it's probably just because we're recording online. Uh, but when I made my joke, it was deadly silent. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. I think my mic just cut out there. I was laughing. <laughs> really? Matt hasn't know. defended himself, though. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, with Lovecraft, there's really... There's kind of a formula. There's not really a set rule for how it has to be. Uh, but most people kind of boil it down. When you get to Lovecraft, you really only need a few things. A first-person perspective, uh, some unspeakable horror that you can't really pronounce its name, a cult, and some sort of monolith or obelisk. That's your Lovecraft formula right there. Yeah, there's a couple other things. Like, he often kind of references... Well, oftentimes in his stories, uh, it's not a first, like, person of recounting of the story. Like, he's not person acting through this, but a person kind of remembering a horrifying thing they've gone through and then recounting their story as kind of like a cautionary tale. Uh... Not necessarily with all of them, but a significant portion of his are someone either telling a story that someone else told them or retelling a story from their own path and not just them telling the story as it happens. Yeah, the best way to kind of put it is uh, it's either he found notes of a family member or someone else who kind of locked it away and is kind of reading about it, 
or uh, we're uh, kind of being told the story through an investigation. That's why most of his stories are usually some sort of doctor, like a scientist or an archaeologist, a detective, or a military man. Yeah, and in a couple I read some sort of confession from someone who suffered this tragedy or this terrible occurrence. Yeah, like I think we mentioned that we both read uh, Dagon, and in that one it's the story of a guy who went through a terrible thing and turned to a opium addiction to try and cope with the shit he saw, and he's essentially writing a suicide note telling the story of what he saw uh, before he ends his life because he can't cope anymore. Yeah, he gets driven so mad that he thinks that uh, Dagon is essentially coming into his building to kill him, which I always thought was a bit of a weird understanding of what he thought was happening because Dagon's, like, goddamn huge. Yeah, not exactly the kind of person who can creep through your house. And the story doesn't even mention the Deep Ones, which are kind of like the merman species that worships him. Well, the story also isn't directly set in his Cthulhu mythos. It's kind of its own independent thing, uh, which just has a lot of the same theme. Okay. Uh, so I was simply saying that another one of his themes that tends to occur a lot is just the idea of something so horrifying that it kind of exists beyond human compre- comprehension. So he oftentimes doesn't even explain things and just lists it as something completely unexplicable and incapable of being described. And he kind of gets away with it because he's not as the narrator saying that he's as the character in the story saying, I can't possibly comprehend it enough to explain what I saw, which kind of is really cool because it allows your imagination as the reader to fill in all the gaps with what you find most horrifying yourself. Yeah, because I think inspiration for a lot of his works was based, I believe, on his belief that humans, in the grand scheme of things, are very insignificant in the world and the universe. And, I guess, other otherworldly powers could potentially exist that are a lot more terrifying and eternal. Yeah. That uh... we're just so insignificant insignificant in the grand scheme of things yeah essentially lovecraft uh when he was writing these stories during his lifetime it was you know after the great war of world war one uh pre world war ii although getting close to the start of it essentially and scientific advancement was happening a lot of beliefs that were held in the past up to this point were being disproven so a lot of world values were being kind of shucking up and on top of that uh he was an atheist as well uh so he has a lot of interesting perspectives on things because of all of those kind of bunched up into one. And within the Lovecraft mythos, uh, there's kind of like three main aspects of these, which is the ancient gods, the deep gods, and the celestial gods, or space gods, essentially. Yeah, so it's the, the great old ones which kind of existed before anything else and kind of defy human expectation, or... Uh, understanding and comprehension the space gods which are essentially just aliens that are more powerful than we can comprehend and the deep ones who from what i understood or how i interpreted it were essentially like the great old ones except they had become trapped beneath the ocean and had existed for long enough uh beneath the ocean on our world that they kind of grew into separate entities yeah, so we're essentially we're looking at uh, the Cthulhu mythos is very much what is specifically the deep ones in a sense, and then uh, of course the ancient ones would be stuff that would deal with uh, ancient artifacts and idols that are linked to like evil dimensions and stuff. Uh, so you'd be looking at stuff like your uh, Dunwich horrors with this one, and then uh, for the space ones, you'd be looking at stuff like uh, what's addressed in uh, the Whisperer in the Darkness. The color of space. Although I do want to mention that I came across some sort of article. I don't know how much merit it has, but according to it, Lovecraft himself only used these gods, like or these beings like Cthulhu, as sorts of plot devices for the messages he wanted to convey. It wasn't uh, him who came up with this whole pantheon, but one of the other writers who started to develop on his whole... I guess, world mythos that started to actually form this whole pantheon of good deities, bad deities, and all that. Yeah, he never really, like, built upon this idea of these pantheons. It's more so he just created a whole bunch of 
different incomprehensible monsters and other people who interpreted his works kind of built them into a pantheon altogether. Yeah, and yeah. that's kind of the interesting things about uh, Lovecraft. A lot of people speculate that uh, his uh, atheistic views on things, uh, his idea of what was evil and good wasn't based on morality, but more so the survival of humanity. So a lot of the creatures in the early Lovecraft works, too, aren't really necessarily able to be described as evil. Uh, they could only be evil in the same way that you would be evil for, you know, stepping on a bug you didn't see, essentially. Yeah. That exact same logic of killing a fly doesn't make you evil the same way that these giant beasts killing humans doesn't make them evil. Yeah, the whole idea of Call of Cthulhu is that you just kind of wait and hope that he never notices you. Yeah, pretty much. And that's a lot of the interesting things where it's like evil within Lovecraft stories doesn't tend to be these creatures. And a lot of times they don't actually manifest themselves directly in it. It's more of a secondhand story. You hear about them that drove someone crazy. And the people that do come into encounter with these creatures, if they happen to, seem to be permanently tainted by it in some aspect. The evil ones tend to be those people that would betray humanity for self-gain or some crazed idea of uh, setting these creatures free. Yeah, it's never really the monsters themselves that are evil. It's the humans that choose to serve them uh, that are evil. Although this does kind of uh, bring me to The Color Out of Space, which was one of the kind of short stories I had read in preparation for this. So the whole plot of that one is that uh, essentially a meteorite falls to Earth and lands in some farmer's backyard, and it exudes this color... And color's kind of used a bit subjectively here because it's not a color that exists within the normal spectrum of light that any human can understand, but a color out of space, hence the name of the story that no human has ever perceived before. Uh, and then this meteorite, essentially people try to examine it to get a better understanding of it, but it shrinks without changing temperature and then gets struck six times by lightning and is destroyed in the process. And the few samples that scientists take away immediately get destroyed upon uh, examination by the scientists. So no one really has any idea what's going on here, uh, which is fascinating. And then we end up having that this alien meteorite just corrupts a farm, uh, drives the few family members who live on the farm completely insane until they start killing each other. And the best part about this is we don't hear the story from the report of anyone who is actually there or from the perspective of someone who directly interviewed them, uh, we get the story from the perspective of a scientist who wants to examine why there's a blight upon the land, who questions a crazy old man who recounts the story of his relationship with the father who lived on the farm uh, when all this shit went down. So it's not even, like, first person or heard from someone who saw it first person. It's heard, like, through this daisy chain of different people who have told the story, so we end up getting a very kind of warped perspective of the story, but it's the idea that anyone even closer to that just starts to go insane, so we get less and less comprehension of what's really going on. And that's kind of the key there with uh, a lot of Lovecraft stories, too, that the events of the story that involve this otherworldly or uncomprehensible thing have to be tied to the idea of, like, a broken reality and suspicion. You, as the reader getting the perspective from this person, have to wonder, is this real? Are they actually witnessing this? Is this something they're going through? Or is it just illusions? Yeah. yeah and it would be... One thing I noticed when I was reading the stories that I did is uh, all three of them had the same thing in common. It was all... All three of them were told by the person who had experienced the moment in question. And their description of how things happened were all kind of rambled and descriptions were repeated it all sounded like it was coming from a madman essentially yeah and that's what these encounters with these beings or their realities or even the knowledge of them can do to a person they're so vast and uh, uncomprehensible that it almost breaks your sense of what is real it's kind of like uh the some people have that unnerving feeling about being next to something big and then having that like multiplied tenfold yeah but then also some of them have very real kinds of explanations behind things like uh, Dagon the guy was out adrift in the ocean in a boat for who knows how long 
with very little food and water, he might have been hallucinating. It was very likely that he was hallucinating and just going crazy. Yeah, in fact, he also specifies that he falls asleep on the boat and wakes up on this landmass and finds it, right? And yeah. afterwards, when he's telling the story to the people that saved him, they actually go over the area and there's no set, uh, indication that there's a landmass or even a landmass that should be in that area. Well, also, during the story, he even recounts that he sees something quite horrifying while on this strange landmass and runs away from it. And the next thing he knows, he's waking up in a hospital bed being taken care of. So it's entirely possible that the entire story happened while he was delirious from, like, dehydration and other shit like that. Yeah, and in his last paragraphs, he even said, I don't know if what I saw was real, if it was just an illusion, or if I'm just gone crazy from my whole experience. But all I know is that I am done with this. Sorry, uh, I know this is the case with Dagon, because that's another one of the stories I read. But with the other stories you read, Matt, uh, were they told kind of first person as they're happening, or was it kind of presented as the narrator recounting tales of shit that had happened to the past? No, the other two that I read were told first person. But they, okay. were, they were reaccounting tales that had happened to them in the past. And that's kind of another key detail with a lot of Lovecraftian stories is they're very rarely told like as the event happens and a lot of the times recounted just so you have that kind of area uh, for escapism where you're not sure this actually happened. This could be something that for various reasons they're misremembering or shit like that uh, just because it adds to that whole lack of understanding of what's going on. And if he had written his stories all from the perspective of this is something I'm actively going through, it just becomes a very different story, and I don't think it would have lasted as long and become as popular as it did if you kind of took that mystery out of it. And that's a, an interesting thing that happens to where a lot of the characters we end up following are very logically sound, and their downfall tends to be they don't believe the warnings they get from uh, the locals uh, of a certain area and end up opening something up that they shouldn't have if they would have, you know, been a little bit more weary of the supernatural. Well, that's the case with uh, The Call of Cthulhu, which is another one of his short stories, and probably one of the better known ones just because of the fact that Cthulhu has literally become the figurehead for his entire mythos. Yeah. Now, also, uh, as a side note, uh, Lovecraft himself considered that uh, Cthulhu story as just a kind of middle ground. It was not great in his eyes, but it wasn't terrible. Well, th th funny enough, uh, this might be a controversial idea, but yeah, Call of Cthulhu is very notorious, famous, and Cthulhu itself is like the icon of the Lovecraft idea. But have you guys actually read the Call of Cthulhu story? Yes, I have. It is such it a hard read. It Yeah, it's... I, the key thing about the Call of Cthulhu story is if you like go out nowadays and search for anything that names itself the Call of Cthulhu or any kind of story based in the world of the Call of Cthulhu, it is nothing like the actual Call of Cthulhu story by H.P. Lovecraft because of the fact that it's such a completely different way of reading or telling a story. Yeah, because the I original story... I started reading it, and uh, I just couldn't continue reading that. I found a plot summary. Yeah, the, the story is... you like the, uh, the character we're following is using a lot of, uh, I guess, fancy big words for a lot of the descriptions of stuff and talking about it, so it's really dry in a sense. And it's really just him going over documents and notes left by his uncle. So that was another key thing where we were talking about kind of all these smart characters kind of logicing their way through explanations and kind of refusing to acknowledge what's potentially right before them until it's their downfall. And that's another key detail with Call of Cthulhu is it's this the narrator is kind of going through his uncle's uh, research papers and stuff. And kind of just shrugging off everything he's reading about this mysterious monster until the very end of the story where he kind of acknowledges, oh no, what have I done? I've become a target because now I myself know too much. And like, there's never like a direct interaction of him interacting with Cthulhu. It's just him starting to realize he was wrong to assume that all of this was fake and there might actually be some truth to some of yeah. the stories that he's been reading. And even if it is fake, there's a cult of devout believers who are terrifying and dangerous. Who are willing to he... kill for their beliefs. Yeah, and they are something that he does have to worry about. 
Exactly. Uh, another uh, interesting story that uh, I feel exemplifies a lot of interesting stuff from Lovecraft, and is actually probably one of my favorite Lovecraft stories, is uh, The Haunter in the Dark. Have you guys read this one? No. I have not read that one. Okay, so the premise of this one is we're following uh, an artist named Blake, uh, artist-author, essentially, and he's living in this Italian uh, town. And his apartment, there's a view of the, the uh, hill uh, of the city, and every evening there's a church up on the hilltop that just kind of lights up, and it just kind of draws his attention so much, and he's so pulled towards it that he decides to go venturing and find it. But as he gets close to the church, he gets lost. He's trying to find it where it is. But all of the townsfolk are like, oh, nope, never heard of it. And then they'll sort of like, oh, nope, don't speak uh, English. I only speak Italian. Uh, please leave. I always enjoy how they say that in perfect English at the time, too. <laughs> uh, and then he ends up finding the church, sneaking into it, and uh, finds this red gem. Uh, the Shining uh, Trappa Hydrazon or something like that. Uh, I can't remember exactly. It's been a while since I read through this one. But essentially, by steering into this gem, he releases the Haunter of the Dark. And he finds out afterwards that there was a cult here and all that stuff. And looking at the stone is what releases this creature. But it's kept at bay by the lights. So the church uh, is actually completely surrounded by streetlights. So the creature cannot escape him, though he's released it. So he's all worried about this constantly. And when he first enters the church, he hears movement and things bumping around he's like oh it's just rats and all that stuff but then afterwards he's thinking, like was that really rats could have been the creature or whatever and huh. the plot of the story it's told from his perspective so it's one of those situations where we're not getting retold stories after the fact but that kind of changes because <laughs> the story's first person uh and we see situations where the city starts losing power and he starts panicking and it comes back and then eventually the story switches to third person and we're reading his documents from the perspective of someone else after the fact. So it's kind of like the little hint halfway through the story, like, hey, Blake dies. Huh. Yeah, and we end up kind of reading someone else's perspective for the actual sh shit going down portion of the story. Yeah, so essentially the part of the story we get at the beginning from his perspective is him slowly going mad, essentially, uh, with yeah. the, the panic from this. And then everything after that, so where the supernatural stuff starts happening to the character leading up to his eventual death, it's all his notes that people are wondering what's going on specifically. I think that's probably a key detail of why these stories are never told directly from the perspective, kind of actively going through it, is just because of the fact that, as you said, it tells the story right up until he starts going insane and switches to someone else reading the his notes on the effects. And it's probably just that whole perspective of it's hard to read a story written from the perspective of someone who is actively going insane. So rather than do that, he only tells the story of people who don't know whether or not to trust what they've seen because they know they've gone insane and seeing it. Or it's people who don't know whether to trust what they're hearing because they're hearing it from someone who they absolutely know has gone insane. So it's that whole you only ever hear from someone who's sane recounting an insane story. Yeah, like uh, one of the stories I read, The Alchemist, it starts off with an old man who's just over 90 now, and he recounts this tale of how he's a noble, and the last of his line, living in an old, decrepit mansion that's been there for centuries, and how his family was cursed, and how all the peasants around the, uh, the castle just avoid them because of this death curse which uh, seems a little odd that his family's cursed since he's 90 and everyone's cursed to die at a young age in that family. But then uh, he also mentions that he's gone, he's starting to go senile in his old age, so uh, he might not remember everything correctly or such. But uh, his father died when before he was born and his mother died in childbirth, so he was only raised by the I guess the butler of sorts, taking care of him and uh, teaching him and all that. And so all he had to do for fun, since he couldn't make any friends with any of the people or the peasants in the village, he was always told to stay away from them, was to read all the books that they had in the castle. And a bunch of them were about, uh, I guess, like demonology and rituals and 
magical, mystical things like that. So he took a very strong interest in that sort of thing. And then he also, at one point in his life, came across some writings that explained the origin of the curse on his family. That uh, there were two, uh, I guess, sorcerers in the town, just a little bit above peasant, but not anything special. A father and a son. The father got killed by uh, someone of the noble family at the time period because they had assumed that these sorcerers took them as, I guess, ingredients for their dark rituals and such. So he strangles the father sorcerer to death, and then just after the guy dies, they're like, hey, no, we found your son over here. It's all good. They had nothing to do with it. And they were just all happy that uh, they found his son, and he was safe, and their uh, fears were unfounded. But the sorcerer's son, who was lurking in the trees in the, just off in the shadows, saw this happen and decided to throw a vial at the guy's face who strangled his father to death, said his curse that uh, anyone of his line would never live any longer than he did at age 32. And that guy promptly died. That's another kind of reoccurring theme in a lot of Lovecraftian stories. Not in all of them, but in a not insignificant number. They kind of feature this idea of curses or just like the idea that the sins of your ancestor kind of continue to have lasting effects on you, even if you're no longer directly related to them. You didn't have a direct impact on any of their choices. You're as distantly removed as possible. You still suffer the effects of the sins of people generations before you kind of doing terrible things and now you have to suffer the consequences a lot of this idea that like you get your guilt from your parents not necessarily being born innocent or anything like that yeah so after he learned that he just kind of spent the rest of his life just keeping track of day by day his exact age down to the hour and he just spent time exploring the castle because it was so big so massive lots of it was just decrepit Wait, so how old was he during the story? I might have missed that detail. Um, he was a little over 90 telling the story. But uh, in the story, he was growing up still. So nearing his okay. 20s in the beginning. And then uh, the end of the story takes place a week before like, he turns 32. So his ultimate deadline in life. Where he finds... Because he's also read about it a bunch of elixir of mortality things that these support these sorcerers were supposedly looking for of course uh alchemist kind of one of the key things you do is the elixir of immortality yep so he found a hidden passage that he had not yet discovered followed it and uh ended up finding the lab of this alchemist who came out as some decrepit, almost skeletal-looking being with dark holes for eyes. Tried to kill him. Guy panicked, threw his torch at the guy, set him on fire. He fainted. When he came to, the alchemist was just a singed black form on the ground, so he goes past into the chamber. See something gold in the corner of his eye? He's too caught up in the moment to actually go look at it. Just assumes it's a pile of gold. And he's trying to logically put together how all his ancestors died at the age of 32. And he looks past to the end of the chamber. There's an exit into uh, a crevice in the hills behind the castle. So like, oh, this is how this guy must have gotten in and did things. But that was so long ago. He, he would have to be so old to have committed all of these crimes. And then as he's walking out again... The corpse just springs to life again, and he's like, You fool, you're looking at the answer right in front of you. It's the goddamn elixir of immortality. Admittedly, it was a kind of funny ending, but still. <laughs> yeah, that tends to be the thing where any of the stories involving the ancient ones seem to be more of uh, curses and family mistakes, uh, whereas obviously the deep ones tend to be more of, you know, knowing too much or digging too deep. And then finally. Yeah, it's kind of like. The idea of like forbidden knowledge of 
knowing something you shouldn't know. And then, of course, anything that involves, like, the space creatures tends to be more of the fear of integration of the other. Uh, I feel one of the good exemplifications of this would be uh, The Whispers in the Darkness. Uh, have either of you read this one? I have not read that one. Uh, no. So this one's essentially, like, there's rumors of these creatures washing up on the shore of this town on stuff. And uh, we're following a character who's investigating uh, at the behest of uh, a friend. And uh, he ends up talking to a, a man who, like, kind of sits in the darkness and constantly whispers. Uh, maybe, hence the title, hint, hint. Uh, but the big reveal of this one is they find out that there's uh, this alien entities, essentially, that uh, it's kind of like body snatchers is the best way to describe it, because at the end he finds out uh, that uh, they found a way to remove the brains from the body and put them in these jars, and by attaching things to the jars they can still speak uh, and all that stuff. And the, uh, the reveal is like he ends up finding in some of these jars the brains of people he talked to, but it couldn't have been them. And that realization just kind of, like, lands at you at the end of, like, oh, they're wearing the people as, like, bodysuits and doing stuff. Huh. So it's that kind of, like, the fear of, like, the integration of, like... It's one of those moments where Lovecraft really shines. If he doesn't tell you specifically, it's more of you read through the story, you think things are weird, and then he gives you a key piece of information that when you look back at the rest of the story, it all kind of, like, fits into a, a neat package in a very yeah, disturbing just way. Else, just purely unsettling. Yeah, I really enjoy the way Lovecraft kind of handles those kind of reveals. Like another one that brings to mind is uh, the Outsider. Have either of you read that one? No, I have not. No. So the idea of that one is there's this guy, uh, for lack of a better term, because we never actually get his name, but uh, he was essentially raised in this castle. And the castle exists in this forest, uh, except all of the trees in the forest are so monumentally tall that he never actually gets to see the sky in his entire existence. And so he's kind of raised alone, has never interacted with another living being of any kind, uh, but understands humanity because inside his castle, there's a library filled with books that kind of describe all of the different situations and human effects. So he kind of understands what it is to be human and what life should be like but feels this kind of unending loneliness. Uh, and so he decides one day that he's going to escape the forest and he's going to try and find a way to reconnect with humanity, uh, which he feels like he's been missing for such a long time. So he decides to climb one of the towers in the cast and he slowly starts climbing the stairs. Uh, and then at a certain point, the stairs start to crumble away. So he starts literally climbing the walls of the tower till he gets to the top where there's this... Um, Trap door, that's the word I'm looking for. There's a trap door, uh, and he climbs through it and finds he's not at the top of a tower, but he's in a completely different world, and at the trap door to this world. Uh, and so he starts exploring this new world, but one of the first things he sees is the moon, and it immediately overjoys him, because he finally gets to perceive something that he's only ever read of in stories. Uh, and it kind of completely changes his perspective on life, and he's determined to kind of set out and find human beings so he can be amongst his own kind for once... Uh, finally. And then he ends up stumbling upon a castle which feels very familiar to him which kind of references it being the same as the castle he grew up in. Uh, and then sees like a party happening inside the castle. And he's like, this is my chance. Finally gonna interact with my own kind. And he kind of climbs into the house and then upon entering the house uh, everyone starts freaking out and he hears that there's a monster inside the house. And he's like, oh god, gotta run and hide from this monster. I'm sure you guys can already see where the story's going. Uh, yep. But don't worry. So he uh, ends up kind of in this small alcove, and he sees something uh, far away from him. And it's this completely alien creature with, like, weird pallid skin and bony limbs and all this shit. And he gets freaked the fuck out, and he stumbles and he falls, and he kind of trips into this horrifying monster. And then the story cuts to the future after that, and now he's chosen to go out and live amongst the monsters and just kind of recounts that story to himself a little bit and about the fact that uh, the feeling of the monster he fell into was like this smooth, metallic, almost mirror-like surface. And it's not like he doesn't realize immediately that he is the monster, but like it's laid out for the person reading the story that 
what he saw was himself in the fucking mirror and immediately was horrified of himself. And then upon realizing it's a mirror, he uh, freaks the fuck out and goes to live with other monsters of the world roaming the lands as a ghoul. And it's this very kind of interesting story all about the idea of, like, even the monsters in that world don't necessarily realize that they're monsters. They're just kind of doing their own thing, and humanity just fucks with them. Huh. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing, like, to say that Lovecraft is just horror doesn't really do the justice to describing it, because where horror has a lot of the similar elements that you would encounter in Lovecraft, Lovecraft, one of the key things is the more important aspect is the tension, not the payoff to the scare. Yeah, it's the kind of like uh, building tension that you feel over the course of the story, and you oftentimes, as you can with the outsider, and like even reading it, you can tell where it's building to, but like the characters inside the story don't always see where it's building the same way that you, the reader, sees, which just causes the tension to be even better because you know what's coming and the characters don't. You have to watch the characters blindly walk into a situation that you can see coming from a mile away. And so you just have this incredible feeling of unease as people essentially like intentionally step on a bear trap. It's uh, very well-written stories of uh, intense pressure. The, the last story that I did read, and I'd recommend you guys read this one too, The Statement of Randolph Carter. I read that one as well. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. That was a good one. Oh, Keith, Anyways, did you read you... that one? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, well, it's told by, as I said before, all the ones that I did read were told by the person who experienced these moments. It's told by some guy who's uh, apparently being interrogated by the police or some sort of detective about the disappearance of who he was reportedly seen with wandering into this swamp. Because these two had apparently gone to investigate some graveyard that has been left untouched and unvisited for who knows how long to look into something. And uh, as you'd expect, it sounds like the ramblings of a madman. So you don't know whether or not to believe his story, despite the fact that he's the one saying it and this is what happened. And he says, whether you believe me or not is entirely up to you. I wouldn't believe me if I didn't see it. <laughs> Although that one also did have a little bit of a weird ending line to it. I should say one that I didn't entirely expect. But I'll just leave it at that and let you experience it. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a fun one to kind of read yourself and see where it goes. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll definitely take a look at that one. I do enjoy Lovecraft and there's a lot of work that you just don't ever get around to, but I do try to get through them when I get the chance. Yeah, because since it's told from uh, the perspective of a rambling, kind of gone insane person, the things he's describing you might not recognize right away as he's describing them. And so it just adds that little bit more I guess, mystery and uh, tension to the whole situation. So do we want to talk a little bit about some of the other works that have kind of been inspired by uh, Lovecraft? Sure, because uh, one thing to keep in mind is, as big as Lovecraft is, you have to expect that it's going to have an influence, as we stated, on things moving forward. So things inspired by Lovecraft are to be expected, and there actually is quite a bit of good stuff. To have a Lovecraft story, you don't have to necessarily be locked into the time period that Lovecraft existed in. In fact, said a couple stories in kind of not exactly super different times, but they've been spread out over a little bit of time. To be fair, given when he was writing his stories, it's hard for them to be set in currently modern times, but other people have done a great bit of work of setting Lovecraftian stories in modern times, because a lot of the themes work today just as well as they would work in, like, the early 1900s. Yeah, and uh, we've had games made in this universe. They're called Cthulhu Games. Dark Corners of the Earth. Uh, recently, there was The Sinking City. Uh, there's movies, podcasts. Uh, actually, there's uh, two podcasts I'm actually quite a fan of. Uh, one's called The Infinite Bad, uh, which is uh, a few people sitting around uh, playing Dungeons & Dragons, uh, not Dungeons & Dragons, but the Call of Cthulhu RPG game, uh, and doing their own spin on a few things. 
Uh, it does a really good of tackling uh, the like Lovecraft Call of Cthulhu mythos in an aspect, but addressing it in a more of a lighthearted way, uh, just where or they're playing an RPG game, they're having banter, not as their characters, but outside of the game about the situation, so it's kind of lighting the mood a bit. Uh, another one, which I highly recommend to anyone who likes these types of stories, it's called The White Vault. They actually just finished their season three, and it's about uh, a technical team that's sent to uh, this facility uh, in, I think it's like Finland, uh, Sweden, like somewhere in the Nordic. And when they get to the facility, there's this bad snowstorm and they're all trapped there. So it's them trying to do their work when strange things are happening. And you can tell like cabin fever is trying to sit in while they're doing all this. And then uh, they find this weird monolith in an underground cave with like an archaeological site. And then things just start getting bad from that point. Yeah, there's uh, also been quite a few like kind of games based off of it as well. Like you already mentioned the Call of Cthulhu game, but there, there's been a whole bunch of board games. Uh, like, oh, there's so many I don't even know where to start. There's the kind of Mansions of Madness is a board game based off of kind of the Cthulhu mythos. Arkham Horror is another one. Yeah. Essentially anything that references Arkham, Arkham was a creation by Lovecraft all of himself of this weird town in the middle of kind of boston or not in boston but in massachusetts of this area where all these kind of crazy things happened uh even like the kind of expanded lore we kind of get from the world of warcraft and like all of the like little lore bits that they kind of release every once in a while like surprisingly well line up with the cthulhu mythos and it's pretty clear that someone in the warcraft like writing room is a fan of Lovecraft's works and keeps kind of like slipping in different references to uh, his kind of worlds, except like changing the names so they're more Warcraft based and not direct references to Lovecraft. Yeah, like uh, another big one that is not directly related to Lovecraft, but obviously takes huge influence from Lovecraftian stuff is uh, Bloodborne. Yeah, definitely. You guys know me. I'm absolutely terrible with anything horror, so uh, I picked up Bloodborne because I love the combat. I love FromSoft games, but it was just too horror-oriented for me to actually get into. But from what I've actually seen of the game and what I've watched of the game, there's plenty of bosses that are huge, eldritch abominations that you have... They're just terror-inducing, and you have no like idea how they'd come to be or what they're capable of. You just know that they're there, and they're, I guess, something you should be scared of. Yeah, and that, that's some of the keywords that like kind of clue you in that it might be Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft-inspired or related. If you hear the word Eldrick, uh, Arkham, Cthulhu, old ones, like it all tends to yeah. be just kind of like synonym to one of these uh, beings or deities. Yeah, and a Warcraft. huge theme of Bloodborne is loss of sanity. Yeah. And yeah, another kinda... video game I came across looks like an older game that I want to look into and possibly play in the future is Sherlock Holmes The Awakened. <laughs> it's a Sherlock Holmes detective game where uh, the creators of the game didn't want to focus on the creatures of the Lovecraftian lore, they wanted to focus instead on, uh, I guess, tension between Sherlock Holmes and what he eventually discovered he was looking into was a cult trying to summon Cthulhu and their kidnappings and murders. I mean, that still works in the mythos of what would be Lovecraft, too, because, again, yeah. a lot of times it doesn't focus on the creature. It's more of the plot device that moves the story and slowly drives the... Uh, hero of the story mad yeah and when i first saw sherlock holmes related with lovecraft and cthulhu i'm like wait really it's sherlock holmes but then as i read the description I'm like oh it's actually dealing with the the cultists and the people not actual monsters key thing that we should uh bring up if we're talking about different works inspired by lovecraft's works is the uh rpg entitled the call of cthulhu which is very 
largely based on the Call of Cthulhu, except with cats, because the internet. Uh, so very fantastic. Still deals with horror and incomprehensible monsters, but also a lot of these horrific monsters are also cats. I enjoy that the subtitle of it is the Necronomicon. The uh, Necronomicon. It's uh, pretty great. Is that a catfish in that picture? That's a cat shark, I believe. Oh, that, that's just terrifying. Yeah. Uh, sorry to derail the conversation by talking about the Call of Cthulhu, but uh, it's a thing everyone should try. Speaking of which, I'm now introducing a recommendation section related to our topic. Uh, and our only recommendation for this episode is The Call of Cthulhu. Check it out. Uh, well, I, I also want to recommend something mainly because I want to watch it. Is it a little two-minute comedy horror short that came out in 2009 called The Necronomicon? And I'm just going to read its synopsis here on IMDb. Do you want to be a nicer person? Are you looking for inspiration to do good things? Well, keep looking. But if you're into opening up terrifying vistas of reality, then the esoteric order of the old ones and Cthulhu cultists want to help. <laughs> All right. I mean, I already recommend uh, taking the time to listen to The White Vault. Really good. Yeah. Fourth season, which looks to be the final season, is uh, coming out eventually. So I take it back. We had multiple recommendations for things to check out. And we'll start doing so more and more often as this podcast goes on, as I'm now declaring, even though we have not discussed. Because <laughs> uh, one thing that I did learn from this podcast is that I am actually really interested in reading more Lovecraft stuff. It, it's definitely a more intriguing and different way of uh, addressing horror. Because I've yeah. always had a mild curiosity about the topic as a whole, but I've never really looked into it more than odd searches about Cthulhu. Uh, now we did... My... Sorry, go ahead. I was say, now, we did kind of touch on uh, you guys starting with Lovecraft, but uh, what was the first story you read and what were your thoughts on it? The first story I ever read was actually a while back, uh, but it was... Uh, the Dunwich Horror was actually the first one I read. Dunwich Horror is very good. It, it, the, yeah. the thing I enjoy about Dunwich Horror is it does a very interesting way of bypassing the, the character we're following, not describing the character to us, uh, which yeah. is it's described secondhand through a guy looking through a scope on a rifle. Yeah, it's a very kind of neat way of kind of handling that whole situation. Yeah, so the char he's panicked by seeing this creature, which was invisible up to this point. He sees it for the first time, and it's moving around too, so you can't really get a clear shot of it. So it's he's pretty much just describes it as hands and teeth and like half a face. Huh. How about you, Matt? What was your kind of first introduction to this? Yeah, my first actual Lovecraft story that I read was the statement of Randolph Carter. And I was through Sorry, did you did you read that for this podcast or had you read it prior to us discussing this topic as a podcast? I had read it uh, for this podcast. I have I've never read anything actually Lovecraftian okay. before we started research for this. I'm ashamed to admit, but uh, perfectly all uh, right. The statement of Randolph Carter certainly drew me in. Like just the weird way of writing, it caught me off guard at first. But as I continued it and finished it. And I read something else. I'm like, hmm, okay, there's uh, trends here. There's similarities between the viewpoints, the styles of writing. And I started to think more about what happened. Is there a logical explanation for what happened in the statement of Randolph Carter? Or is there actually something more behind the scenes? Yeah, it's kind of funny how uh, reading Lovecraft can draw you in in the exact same way that the characters within the story try to get drawn into the lore. How about you, Keith? What was your kind of introduction to the works of Lovecraft? So, funny enough, my introduction to Lovecraft did not come from one of the books. Uh, uh, my first introduction was actually Dark Corners of the Earth, which is a PlayStation 2 game. Nice! Hmm. So the game starts off that you're kind of like 
a detective who's helping police raid uh, an abandoned rundown building that's kind of been run by a cult. So you're helping them raid the building, and then you enter the building through the back with some of the police, and a shootout starts. And uh, one of the uh, cultists directly recognizes you and tries to tell you something and then ends up dying. And you end up having to escape from a few other cult members into the basement. And it's this weird labyrinth of, like, uh, totems and stuff. And then your next thing you know is you kind of just wake up back in your bed and you start trying to solve the mystery. And that kind of got me interested in the whole idea of, like, oh, what is Cthulhu? And then, you know, I, I more so started on the game side of things. So played a few of the Call of Cthulhu games itself, uh, looked into some of that, and that's what kind of got me into the Lovecraft stories itself. And then uh, I just started looking for other things and ended up finding some podcasts, and there's now a lot of uh, Lovecraft stuff I consume. Well, uh, my fun thing with the Dunwich Horror was... When I was in high school, our teacher, or not high school, in junior high, our teacher got us to do kind of book reports on different kind of stories, except he gave us like a list of like a dozen different stories and said like we would pair off into groups of however many and choose one of those stories. And one of the people in my group was like a huge fucking Lovecraft fan. And he was like, would it be cool if like we chose a different story? And he's like, yeah, just get it approved by me first. And he chose uh, the Dunwich Horror. And the teacher was like, yeah, cool, whatever, try it out. And so I got introduced to Lovecraft through a book report in high school. <laughs> Normally, uh, the book reports you do in high school end up having you hate the book forever. No, I was actually uh, pretty into this one. It was it was dope huh. to quote the person who was in my group who decided we would do the Dumbachor. <laughs> I mean, that is a good choice. The Dumbachor is actually one of those classic Lovecraft stories that I feel... If you can only read certain ones, uh, like say five, Dumbledore would have to be included in that every time. I'm definitely going to have to read Absolutely. that one then. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. In the board game uh, Betrayal at the House on the Hill, was there a, a Lovecraftian-based scenario in that that you could get? There's a lot of horror-based stuff. There are some Lovecraft-based creatures, though, yes. Yeah, so for those of you, I don't... If In case you haven't listened to our board game episode, so, uh, where we talked about it, the game, the Betrayal at House on the Hill, involves like 50 different scenarios that you can potentially play through, depending on how the game breaks down. A couple of them relate to kind of different Lovecraftian stories. None of them are directly based on any Lovecraft stories themselves, but I think at least one of them involves like Cthulhu, and they're all kind of, some of them are set within the Cthulhu universe or mythos, but not necessarily based directly on any Lovecraft stories. And that's something, uh, if the people, anyone listening to this is interested in looking into any of this Lovecraft story stuff, all of it is public domain. So yeah. there's nothing that's preventing you from just going online and find these and read them. They're free and available wherever you look. Uh, you can buy books, of course, as well. Uh, but yep, yeah, uh, the whole Lovecraft storyline, uh, whatever you like about it, is up for the taking. Yeah, yeah, like literally, himself... if you... If you go on Google and literally just Google the Dunwich Horror, because we were just talking about it, I uh, pulled it up on Google. The second option is a free copy of the Dunwich Horror to read online. Yeah. So and Lovecraft himself was part of a, I guess, a small circle of authors where Lovecraft started his whole kind of mythos thing in that sort of dark scenario setting. And all of these authors in the circle jumped on and expanded on it and he was okay with that everyone's sharing the same ideas information growing upon it and just kind of pushing it to see where it would go yeah he wasn't one of those authors who like felt he had ownership over the stories he was telling uh from a lot of the stuff you read about him he felt a lot more like he just wanted the stories out there and, and if other people wanted to expand on them in their own rights he had no kind of oppositions to that which is one of the reasons why you'll see a lot of Cthulhu-based board games or video games or RPGs or stuff like that is because of the fact that, like, it's a cool universe to build on and the owner of the property was not at all opposed to people building it. Which is a cool thing to see in today's day and age, given there's so much, like, Disney types who are not at all cool with you building on their properties. I mean, uh, Steamboat Willie's supposed to go into public domain in the next couple of years, again. 
I'm sure the laws will change just like a week before it's supposed to happen. I just want to add that there's a couple uh, songs also inspired by Lovecraft. Well, I think that does it for our episode today. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or uh, just any input on it, or even a suggestion of an episode, you can reach us at whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. We're also available on Instagram, all podcasting locations. Uh, on Instagram, we do put up the hints of what our episode will be. If you happen to guess it correctly, you get some internet points. Uh, Peter calls you out. Fun stuff. Nothing quite like being called out by Peter. Uh, we're also available on YouTube. We put the episodes up at noon, the same day that the episodes go live on all podcast platforms. So you can view there, like, subscribe. Uh, we actually have no comments uh, from anything this week. I guess most people are pretty busy uh, with things going on, going to the beach and such. Uh, that being said, no one has correctly guessed our topic for the podcast as of yet. Quick reminder, we do post them like probably two hours before we finish recording. So you do get a chance to kind of squeeze in there and guess. Uh, if you do manage to figure it out, we will absolutely call you out at the beginning of our next podcast episode. I think it's also sorry. I think it's also important to reiterate that this podcast was a fan suggestion. Uh, Matt, do you want to repeat once more the name of the person who suggested this topic? Yep. Once more, this topic was suggested by Will Leary. Thank you for the suggestion. It was really interesting for us to look into, and I hope that we did a good job at uh, just talking about it. Yeah, and please suggest more creepy stuff because Matt hates it, and it's always fun to make him have to go well, through it. Like the fact I mean, that we got to talk about it earlier last year, and Matt had to sit down and watch it was. I'm just glad so... I watched the old version as opposed to the new one. So I'm not if you want to, if anyone wants to suggest horror. Like, this is case in point. We will force Matt to read up on any topic to write a podcast about it. So, whatever you suggest, we will try to get to it uh, eventually. I'm sure I'm going to have some nightmares about Cthulhu or something tonight. How do you know they're nightmares and not just prophetic dreams? <clears throat> Don't talk to me like that. Don't tell me that. The next thing you're going to say is that my neighbors are Cthulhu cult worshippers. I mean, if anything, they're probably aliens that are body snatching. No, I wouldn't be surprised. Would not be surprised. Do you guys have anything you kind of recommend doing over the next two weeks to help me get through this quarantine? Because I feel like I'm starting to go a little bit stir crazy. Uh, well, let's see. Our next episode will be on May 4th. Ah, special day for uh, some special things, I guess. Yeah, you know what they say. May, May... no, I've never heard that. It's um May fourth of July be a good day or something like that. Uh, oh, fuck, May... I don't remember how it goes. May showers bring Deloreans something. Man, Delorean is a nice car. Yeah, 